All right, so I have Tamara and Erin here with me today, and we are going to be talking about a subject that is and can be a little bit taboo, but I feel like society is getting ready to start a new chapter and being able to talk more openly about this topic of addiction and how it honestly affects every single person on some level. So we are going to be tackling a few angles with addiction, such as how recovery starts with the addict and then how the process of healing can start with a loved one affected by the addiction. My first question here is, what is the best way to approach the topic of addiction, especially with a loved one? Each case is going to be individual, but it has to be done from my perspective and what I've seen over well over a decade is it's got to be done with love because the addict is in a place where they don't even love themselves. So can you give me an example of how somebody can do that? I can talk it, but I even really myself don't fully understand it. You have to be open and realize that Yes, they may consider themselves broken and that they're in a bad spot, but it's not my place to judge them. Right. I need to learn to love them the way our Heavenly Father and the way Jesus Christ love them. Um, And sometimes that's hard because you may not feel you have the time nor the desire or your plate is already full, but the addict wants to be heard. Okay. Um. All things can heal when they come to the light. Sicknesses heal when you go see a doctor. You know, bones heal, bodies heal. Um, There's a reason doctors say get sunlight. And if you can bring, if the addict's willing to bring their problems to the surface, then if it's important enough for them, it should be important enough to whoever they bring it to. Just keep in mind, it's not your job to Fix them. Right. A lot of times they just want to be heard, vented. They need a sounding wall so it makes sense in their head so they can make the next step. Let's say we have a family and um, the family is aware that one person is, is really struggling with an addiction. Do you, Does the family kind of have to wait until the addict is ready? I mean... Where is that starting point? Because it is, you know, the family is probably really stressed of like, I want to go there with love, but how, how does one do that when maybe the addict isn't ready? Lots of prayer. If the addict is not ready, no amount of love will make them ready. You, you can't love a person to be better. Mm -hmm. You can pray. You can ask to know what they need spiritually and as a family member. But until that individual addict hits their own version of rock bottom, because it's different for every person and every different addiction, you should still be willing to accept them as a loved family member, despite what they're doing. Yeah, they cause a lot of hurt and a wake of destruction a mile wide behind them. Mm -hmm. And if they're not ready, it's going to be a mile wide in front of them, too. Um, And sometimes that is really hard. Because the family looks at it and they're like, we've seen this song and dance before. Nothing's going to change. Nothing is going to change. And that's really tough because as the family's thinking nothing's going to change, the addict also senses that. Okay. That they aren't fully loved. They aren't fully supported. And it goes back to 
you need to work really hard to love the sinner and not the sin. Yeah. I mean, we hear that a lot here in, in this culture, and I never really understood that until I got involved and working on myself. And there's a lot to be said about it. There's a lot to unpack there. Quite frankly, it um, has to start long before the knowledge of the addiction ever occurs. That's one thing that we really strive to help people with is that they need to prepare for an addiction before they ever even feel like it's a problem for them. They need to think about what kind of response they're going to have to their son or their daughter or their spouse uh, when they're gonna, before they ever even have them come to confess to them because that moment can't ever be redone. It can't ever be um, rehearsed. And so you have to decide way before then how you're going to react and how you're going to respond. Well, I never um, thought of that. Because one thing that we've found is that they say, addicts that we've known have said that the worst part about their addiction was the response they got when they finally confessed what was going on. And if I could have every person in the world who has a family, who has anybody that they love, think about how they would respond if that person were to come to them with that before it ever happens, that would be um, a huge boon to everybody who's ever had to deal with addiction is if they, they need to think about that. It, it's kind of like how we tell our youth they need to think about what they're going to say to someone before they're all, ever offered a cigarette or before they're ever offered a drink. It's, it's very much the same thing. People need to think about how they're going to respond before it ever happens. So can you give me an example of like, um, especially when you've been talking to someone and saying, you know, I came out with my addiction and my family, you know, they went opposite of love. Like, what did that look like? Do, do you know? Well, I know that when I was a high school student and I was in seminary, my seminary teachers quite explicitly told us that dating someone who had that kind of issue would be an absolute no-no, that you should never, like if you ever found that out about someone that you were dating, you should end the relationship immediately. Hmm. And I then later on, as I got a little older, I started to have to actually deal with that problem. And, and I found that that was not necessarily the best advice. In fact, if I were to talk for a minute about mm -hmm. specifically with Aaron and the night that he confessed to me, that night when that happened and that occurred, I um, had a very uh, distinct memory. Um, and that, and it, I went back to the day that Aaron and I were married. Um, and we were married in the Manti Temple. And we had the ceremony, and as we got up from kneeling at the altar, Aaron's family was behind him, and my family was behind me. And so we both turned around, and people began to hug us and congratulate us and that kind of thing. And it was several minutes where he was on one side of the room and I was on the other. And I remember... Uh, being in that room and looking over at Aaron and thinking 
that's my husband now. And looking at him and thinking that he would look different somehow or something would be different. And I remember thinking, nope, he's still just Aaron. And the night when he confessed to me, I remembered that. And I remember the Holy Ghost prompting me and saying, he's still just Aaron, even though he has this problem. And even though he um, is going to be on a very long road and very long journey, he's still Aaron. And he's still the person that you love and the person who loves you. And so it was having that knowledge that uh, I think is what made us decide to work on it together rather than uh, dwell on hurt and resentment and and have it uh, be a wedge between us. Do you feel like you already knew how you would respond? Like, I know you had that memory and all the things, but did you feel like you were even prepared for this conversation? In a lot of ways, no. I've learned a, a lot since then that would have been helpful at the time. But in other ways, yes, because this was not actually the first person in my life that has dealt with this addiction. Mm -hmm. And so I had already had some experience and had already made mistakes with being the support and the family member of this person. And so I did do things differently with Aaron than I did with the first time around. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I, I definitely have learned a lot more since. And if everyone knew what I know now, when they have to first um, deal with it, it would be, it would be a lot better for a lot of people. So I know that there, it's probably a very like complicated process, right? But do you have like bullet points of just like, this is what I've learned. This is what I would recommend someone to do number one is think about it now think yeah. about how you're going to respond now before it ever happens to you the second is um, to remember who that person is to you before you ever know about their addiction the third is you've got to refuse to let it change you which is not easy to do if you haven't thought about it beforehand but you do you have to refuse to let the, the addiction um, define you and, and, be, and, and change you, basically. Mm -hmm. And then the third is that you have to be very stalwart about it um, because the person that you're supporting is going to slip and they are going to fall and you have to be constant through that whole thing. You have to not ever let it get you down you have to never succumb to any kind of addictions yourself you have to remain constant the whole time how do you do that when your loved one is ultimately going to go through a regression because uh i can just imagine how that feels on both parties of that regression you have to do things that are extreme especially when compared with society or even other ward members, those kinds of things. Um, to me, I believe it's a lot like the anti-Nephi Lehi's um, when they buried their weapons of war, which was, in a, which was in a very extreme thing for them to do, especially, you know, they lived in a society where those things were needed. 
that was how you protected yourself. But they decided to do this really extreme thing and bury their weapons of war. And a lot of times you have to do those things too. Wow. Um, we've done very extreme things in our household and in our family, and we have been uh, mocked for it. Um, but we do them anyway because we know that those kinds of actions help. Yeah. And they keep us from, from slipping as much as we maybe would have otherwise. So Erin, let's backtrack a little bit. Can you tell us what things maybe led up to your addiction, how you tried to cope with it when it became an addiction, and then maybe some stigmas that were holding you back for, from seeking help? Nobody wakes up one day with the goal of saying, I want to become an addict. Right. Ever. Most addicts were introduced when they were young. Mm -hmm. Whatever it may be. Drugs, alcohol, gambling, pornography, you know, judging people, stealing, whatever they may be. And the list goes on and on because yeah. everybody has an addiction. We just haven't uncovered them all yet. Right. Or they haven't hit ground bottom on themselves yet. Mm -hmm. um, so... I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I want to do this. But my addiction was introduced very young, mm -hmm. very innocently. I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. What I needed to do was find out what was keeping me there. And it was something I loved so much. And it was such a big part of my life. I got into music. If it played or could be played, I knew about it. I knew who sang it. I knew when it came out. I knew the lyrics. I everything from Beethoven to the grungiest, filthiest rap and rock out there. I knew it all. And it was a part of my life. And something changed. Actually, I was already in recovery when I'm sitting in church one day. It's quiet. The sacrament's being passed. And my little one is singing and I'm not paying much attention because it's quiet and he's singing and I'm, my head starts bobbing and then it dawns on me. He's singing some of that filthy rap that I listened to out in the garage and it was hand over his mouth, got down and whispered and I'm like, not here. And that clued me in. I was like, it's time to look at what you listen to. And it was, after Christmas, just after Christmas, and I remember vividly, I was sitting at a table, kitchen table, camera was in the kitchen, I'm talking to her, and I'm like, I'm going to get rid of all my music. And I got rid of it all. Went through, got rid of everything that was bad. And a weight was lifted off, and all of a sudden I could see. And at that weight, I'm just like, oh, that's, that's fine, I don't miss it. And I was talking to my brother-in-law about it, and I was... <laughs> We were on a road trip one day and I was grabbing. I'm like, I don't remember music anymore. Cause he asked me who was playing on the radio. And I'm like, I don't know. Wow. It was familiar, but I'm like, I don't know who it is. I don't know anything. And I started griping about it. And he's like, Aaron, stop. Cause I told him the story about getting rid of the music. And he's like, where are your thoughts? Are you having any temptations, any slip, anything? And I'm like, no. And the music was actually what was keeping me in my addiction. Wow. I didn't know that. But over the years, I started when I was young 
going to um, bishops. Loved them all. Great people. But, you know, going back to when I was a kid and this was happening through my teens and I, I was looking for help, I'd walk in and they'd be like, well, just stop the addiction. Stop it. Yeah. Well, it's not a light switch. Right. And so it always frustrated me. So I would just shut down. I'd be like, well, I don't know what they're talking about. And this was decades before the addiction recovery program that the church has now. As the church started rolling more stuff out and the bishops started learning more, it became more helpful, which is fantastic that they have it now. But the stigma of addiction is only as strong as the addict is willing to let it become. Mm. Because when they get to the point that they recognize, hey, I've got this, okay, now what? Um, once they can realize, hey, I'm a person again who's wanting to get my life back, if they can stop the thought pattern, which is the hardest thing for any addict, because they get into, they don't, like I said at the beginning, they don't get into it just waking up one day and saying, hey, I want to go try drugs. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever does. Most addictions from the people that I have been involved with over the years get involved in their addictions through family. Mm which is sad, yeah. um, whether it's inadvertent or purposefully. Um, and they want a way out, but by the time they realize they need that way out, they're so used to that instant gratification, that good feeling in their brain that gives them that, you know, they get stressed out before a test, so they go take their drugs or their porn yeah. or their alcohol or whatever it is, and it calms them down. For a few moments. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't last. So they're always in this. I, I was always in a state of agitation. Yeah, that makes sense. Honestly, if it wasn't for this angel right here next to me, we probably still wouldn't be married if, if she wasn't given the promptings that she needed at the time to help me have a rock in our relationship. Yeah. Because I was in a storm just getting beat up against the rocks, not knowing where or how. But I also believe that had I found this program earlier in life, that I wouldn't have paid attention to it. I fully believe God is behind where I'm at now. And all the steps I had to take to get here to function. Yeah. There, there's a rhyme and a reason to what happens when. I don't always agree with it, but when I pray, God's like, you're where you need to be right now. Let's talk about change because change is uncomfortable, right? So what is the first step to create the change that you're, the addict has decided, I, I'm done. I just don't know what to do from here. What, what does that look like? Because I feel like it can be very overwhelming very quickly. It can Everything starts with a desire. Addiction starts with a desire. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I was involved or I came in contact or whatever the first time. The first time's always the innocent time. Mm -hmm. It's an accident. You can move on. Yeah. But if you entertain that and return, now you're starting down the path. The, the first thing I guess would have to understand 
that your life is out of control and you want to change it. Yeah. Because everything I did up to the point of actually going to these meetings and countless hours in these meetings and praying and in the scriptures and stuff mean nothing unless you're willing to change. Yeah, that's true. I've, I've, I've met a lot of great addicts that think, oh, well, I went to a meeting or two, talked to my bishop, I'm done. And a year down the road, they're right back to where they were. Because mm -hmm. the desire was there instantly, but they didn't necessarily want to put in the work to see it all the way through. Yeah. And that's the tough part. Yeah. Addiction is a life of ease. It truly is. The hard part is the recovery. Yeah. Because now you have to rely completely on God. And God doesn't always give you everything you want right when you want it. Through recovery, right? There's twists and turns and ups and downs. So how do you feel God's love for you as you're going through those roller coaster moments where you're going, you know, you're doing those twists and turns and kind of in a downward spiral trying to get back up? I feel like that is a really... I feel like it's really hard to feel God's love sometimes. I'm trying my best and I'm still failing. What what advice can you give for someone who's just feeling like their best just isn't good enough? I think we're all in that boat. My best will never be good enough. Right. That's why we have the atonement. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of my good friends and myself for that matter had to learn, relearn, because a lot of addicts are LDS. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. And a lot of them married in the temple, went on missions, you know, served in bishoprics, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, they have to relearn how God talks to them. And believe it or not, as you get older, that changes. Yeah. God talks to me different now than he did when I was a teenager. And different than he did when I was just getting baptized. Mm -hmm. And different than I, you know, than five years ago. So it's a constant, you have to learn how is God talking to you now through these trials? Basically, I just look for peace. Okay. If, if something's going wrong in my life and I'm starting to climb a wall and I can't fix that problem, by spending an hour in the garage, turning a wrench or making sawdust, then it's deeper and it needs family. It needs a bishop. It needs more prayer. Sometimes it's just, I need to get away mm -hmm. for a few minutes, have some alone time um, so I can listen. Addicts spend a lot of time justifying why they're... <laughs> As, as much as they hate the addiction, they're very verbal about why they're in it. Mm. It's like they want to follow God, but not offend Satan. And the addiction is Satan's, not yours. Yeah. Satan doesn't have a body, but he wants to experience everything there is. Um, he spends a lot of time convincing you it's the cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you do it, whatever it may be, you're the worst piece of flesh on the planet. God doesn't love you anymore. 
And he's really good at selling that lie. Yeah. And the younger you learn that lie, the harder it is. Because the addicts, I didn't want to listen. I knew it all as I'm sitting there white knuckling it, not progressing. I love that. And I think what I really love about that is you look for peace because one of my favorite songs is Peace in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just feeling that, you can automatically mindfully say, Christ is here. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really powerful. Um, so, Tamara, you might have touched on this a little bit, but what was the hardest thing for you to accept, but now has been maybe like the most healing for you? The hardest thing for me to accept was that Aaron's perceptions from from his addictions were never going to be something that I could measure up to and that I would never be as attractive or as alluring as whatever the addiction was. Aaron has been very careful to make sure that he expresses the exact opposite, that if he could spend time doing his addiction or he could spend time with me he would choose to spend it with me Mm -hmm. and uh, that is one of the things that I have to do when uh, Aaron maybe has a setback or something is Irene as I go through and I list the things that I have in a spouse that I have because he has dealt with this addiction um, for most of our marriage And those are things like when he and I go on a date out to dinner and there are TVs with the football game on in the restaurant, Aaron isn't watching those. He's looking at me and he's trying to have a conversation with me. And I have a husband who studies the scriptures every day and has them out where his children trip over them and Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have uh, I have a husband that prays fervently every day and I have a husband that worries about someone knocking on our door late at night and needing a blessing and him being ready for that when we got to a point where I was needing blessings in the middle of the night really often he was he was ready for that and he was prepared for that um and he's the kind of person that doesn't uh object to putting a shirt and tie on and going when he when he's needed and i have a husband that is very mindful of spending time with his children and spending time with his spouse and not spending it um doing things that are going to make him idle and make him mm-hmm. susceptible to temptation. Now, those are the things that I have because I've decided to be married to an addict. Wow. So. Wow, that is super powerful. Holy cow. Uh, we've talked a lot about how an addict means a rock to lean on. And I feel like that is a huge mental load on you to be that rock. I mean, really, how do you do it? Because I feel like trying to be that rock is so much pressure. How can that be done? Well, the really good thing is 
is that God has provided us with steps. And one thing that you have to not be resistant to is just starting over again and again and again. And you start with step one and you go through them or you start with praying again and you do it every day until you feel better about it or things get better or you start reading your scriptures again and you do that every day until things get better and um yeah you just start over over and over and over again and you just know that there is this path that you can follow and if you have to backtrack to the point that it's familiar again and then start out again that's what you do what do you guys do on a daily basis to support Erin and provide the best possible scenario every day for success yes um we one thing that we've that i've found is detrimental to us and and Erin's um temptations are if we get too busy doing anything we uh we we will have problems if that's what's going on and so we have to be very careful to not try to do too much uh, and to get ourselves overwhelmed and we have to we have to have those priorities that's going to keep us keep the holy ghost in our home and the spirit in our home whether that means there's things that we don't do or things that we do that nobody else does or things like that those are vital to the spirit in your home. And we are, one thing we have all learned is to not be afraid to get blessings. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we're not afraid of doing is regrouping. Um, you know, if we feel like we just need to have a time where we are alone or we just have time to cry or whatever, uh, rest is very important in our home naps are very important in our home even Mm -hmm. even with us being as old as we are uh all of that's very important to keeping the spirit in our home where it should be okay with that being said is there a time where a family has to step back because the addict's desires are not quite in line with the family's goals as a family member And as a child of God, which I remind myself I am all the time, we are entitled to God's blessings. If we ask in faith and we're asking for the right thing, whenever something starts to go sideways, family members have the right to seek a blessing for themselves to know how to help. And I think a lot of family that I've dealt with overlook that they want to be helpful according to what they understand, according to not even according to necessarily what's popular, but what they understand. And they kind of circumvent or omit that they could use a blessing too, because as things go sideways with the addict, it doesn't matter what the addiction is it's going to have an effect on somebody. Boundaries are really important too, yeah. for the for the people yep. that are supporting it. They have to decide how far they're going to go. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, when they're going to allow the law to step in or when they're going to allow uh, professional help, like therapists, whatever you want to call it, to step in when, you know, they're going to need to maybe be separated from someone or they need to be separated from you. There's, you have to think about all those boundaries and then you have to stick with them too. So for someone who is creating boundaries and the addict keeps crossing those boundaries, what help is there for the addict? Because I feel like at that time when the family does separate themselves from the addict, the addict just feels unloved, yet mm-hmm. the boundaries are already crossed. So what, Well, how do you navigate that? If, if the boundaries are getting crossed, then they aren't boundaries. Somebody in that chain is allowing it to be crossed. Typically, you set up a boundary for safety, whatever it may be. And if they cross it, they're either going to endanger themselves or the family. Right. A spouse, a child, a neighbor, whatever you consider is in your sphere of influence. And if you don't stop that, then instantly they're like, I can keep going. Um, and as Tamara mentioned, sometimes it gets to a point that the law or a judge or a counselor or, 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 or needs to step in somebody that's not part of the situation needs to step in and be like, this is the way forward and you're going to do it. And a lot of addicts don't like hearing that. They'll fight and they'll balk, but you know what? That's what they that's what they're crying for. I can't tell you how many addicts I call good friends right now that had everything taken away. They ended up in jail, they lost everything, and they they thank God for it all the time. They're like, I would not have changed had I not lost my family. Had I not lost my business, had I not lost my freedom, had I not lost X, Y, and Z, um, it's helping them out. They needed that boundary that could not be changed. And it usually takes somebody else stepping in. Um, If they aren't taking care of boundaries on the outside with a family member and you can't handle it there, there's only two places it'll end up, either in the news, which nobody wants to see a family member in the news or next to a hole. Nobody wants to deal with that either. Mm-hmm. Um, they sound extreme. That's the nature of addictions. Right. If you can't get them under, under control yourself. And if you're that bad, everybody thinks that the law is a bad person. They don't want to deal with an addict. They're going to take you to the hospital or take you somewhere you can get help. And sometimes you need help besides God. You want God involved, but now that God's involved and you still are having problems, then you go to the bishop. Mm-hmm. Bishop can help with counseling. He can help with, with where to go, you know, different programs and different things. Help? Yeah, it'll, it'll seem extreme, some of the programs, but they're all done with love. You hear horror stories, but you're only hearing horror stories from people that don't finish Hmm. people that give up 
because it was too hard, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sobriety is hard because you have to trust completely in God and in your family's support and in yourself. And the hardest person to forgive is yourself. Every week I go to meetings. In fact, I got one tonight. I'm a facilitator in a group. And the hardest thing is you're listening to these people pour out their souls during the sharing portion. And you get up afterwards and they're like, you know, after the meeting's closed and we sit there and talk for a few minutes and they're like, how can we do it? And it's like, you need to forgive yourself. So what's step one with that? Because I feel like that's a very complicated. With forgiving yourself? Yeah, I feel like that's a lot to unpack. Where is a starting point with that? Because that's a journey in and of itself. It is, and it doesn't happen first because you have to learn to trust yourself. And most addicts, by the time they're seeking help, whether it's by themselves or court-ordered, have given up on trusting themselves and believing themselves. Right. So they have to rebuild it. And the best place to start, and a lot of people don't like hearing it, is with God. Yeah. God's the only one that won't judge. As long as you're alive, he's not going to judge you. Yeah. When you're dead, it's too late. You, you got to get up where you fall. If you're crossing a river on rocks and you're jumping from one rock to another and you get out in the middle of the river and you slip and fall, you swim back to the other side of the shore and start again. A lot of addicts do that. They think they have to go back to the beginning. No. Find the closest rock you're next to, climb on it, and keep progressing keep moving yeah addicts are the hardest people on themselves when they're trying to get recovery because they think oh i slipped up i can attest to this oh i slipped up i screwed up i gotta go back to the beginning no pick it up say a prayer write your thoughts do whatever you need to to find that peace and then move on get to the other side of that river hmm guess what? You'll get to the other side of the river. You'll go across a nice calm meadow for a while and you'll find a bigger river. God's pretty good at that. He's like, okay, you solved that addiction. Mm-hmm. Guess what band-aid I'm going to take off now? Because the addiction is just the action of a deeper problem. You may in this lifetime figure out what that problem was. You may not. And is that something that the 12-step program helps you uncover? The problem? Yeah, like the root The 12-step program helps you find Jesus and the atonement. Um, It's not always good to find the root. Sometimes you chop the tree down and you kill the stump and let the stump, as it's rotting away, take care of the root and you move on. Because if you're spending all your time looking in the past trying to find the problem, that is detrimental to your recovery because you're trying to move forward while looking backwards okay you've got to keep moving forward and some days are tougher than others Mm -hmm. and everybody can do it it's just they've got to they've got to find god they've got to feel loved and if at all possible they have to find a rock in their life that they can lean on did you start with the 12-step program is that what you very first started with yep okay i heard about it i don't know probably 16 or 17 years ago in conference. I was at work, covered in grease. I was a mechanic on base and I'd hit rock bottom. And the thought came to my mind. It was like, you heard in the last conference, somebody mentioned this, look it up. Hmm. 
washed my hands, sat down at the computer, looked it up. All there was was a phone number. Wow. It was a web page with the phone number. Called it. Somebody in Salt Lake answered. I said, I'm looking for a meeting. They're like, where do you live? And I said, in Riverdale. They're like, we have one in Roy Thursday nights. And I think it was a Wednesday that I called. So I went home and I told Tamara, I'm like, I'm going to a meeting. Hmm. What is it? I don't know yet. Something about recovery, but I'm going. I feel I need it. Um, at that point in my life, I was still white knuckling it. and I was feeling okay. No real issues around that time, but just the prompting was like, go look it up. And I did. You guys are really forward about, you know, being willing to talk about addiction and recovery mm -hmm. and everything like that. Have you guys, when did that kind of be like a turning point where it's just like, this is a problem. We want to, you know, express it in an appropriate way, way be able to create a community and, and, you know, release some of that stigma as like, oh, addict, you know, stay away and all the things like what has kind of brought you guys to this point to where it's just like, I'm acceptant of this problem we have, but we want to be able to share what we've learned. For me, it's really just evolved slowly over time. It had a little bit to do with having kids and, and trying to raise them and, and what we've had to say to them about um, addictions and what we've had to say to try and stop them from getting them, basically. Um, there's also a little bit, I have read several articles some of them even were in the Liahona and things like that um, about spouses and none of them had a narrative like mine most of them were divorced wow. because of the addiction and not that I don't think that their perspective was valid or that it should be so you know it needed to be shared but I just felt like no one was sharing the story like mine. It needed to be shared just so that people would know that having it destroy your family and your marriage is not necessarily what is going to happen or has to happen. Mm -hmm. um, that, that there can be other alternatives, basically. And so I just felt like that's why I needed to start to tell my story, too, because oh. it's different from what I what I'm seeing mm -hmm. in in different uh internet forums and, and mm -hmm. articles and that kind of thing and Aaron was it really hard for you to kind of just accept the fact of you just like I this is who I am and just like Tamara said like a lot of who you are is making you the best that you can be what did that <laughs> look like for you when you were finally just able to just come out with it it was a relief mm -hmm. It's only been within, I don't know, the last two or three years, maybe. I mean, on a case-by-case -case situation, I may tell someone. Mm -hmm. But it's been within the last two or three years that I'm a little more vocal about it. Only because I see patterns. And I, I, I see patterns of roads I've been down mm. on people. And I'm like, I've had more than one conversation with my wife where I'm like, Something doesn't happen. That this is where they're going to end up, you know. And it's like, how do I step in? What can I do? And a lot of times, it's like, it's just someone you saw at a grocery store. Let it go. It's like, well, okay, but the patterns are there. 
I, you know, if I could get on a rooftop and shout it out and anybody listened, great, I'd do it. Um, it's not necessarily like that. It's just more of a case by case. Yeah. I've had some people come up and talk to me, you know, ask questions. Hey, I'm always willing to answer questions. Mm -hmm. But with the understanding that, hey, I don't need to know about your addiction. I don't care. I'll answer your questions. I'll provide you the resources. But hey, I know someone that can help you. It was one day I was coming home with my dad from the Family History Library when it used to be on 23rd in an old chapel before they built the new one. Or coming down the street. Hadn't hit Washington Boulevard yet. And the spirit's just like, you need to tell your dad right now. And I go, hey, dad, this is what's going on. He's like, I know. How'd you know? He's like, I've seen it. Why didn't you bring it up, Dad? He's like, because you needed to get to this point. And then we talked. Very open. Very, you know, it was, it was great because now somebody else knew. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to shout it from the rooftops that people just need to talk. We're in a society where we're always heads down. And the world's passing by and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love talking to people about it. Yeah. And just like, so to kind of bring it full circle, when we first started talking it's almost a family member can see a family a family member suffering, but a lot of times you just have to wait. Yep. And they may not know what they're suffering with, mm -hmm. but they know something's wrong. And then it's a waiting pattern. And you know, if you, like Tamara mentioned before, if you know how you're gonna react before it happens, then you may be in a situation where you can have a heart to heart with that person. What I love from what I got from this conversation is that recovery is possible for both the addict and the addict's family. As mm -hmm. long as there is desire, Christ and God to be a part of your life. Yes. But the interesting thing that, that people need to be aware of as well is, yes, there's a program for addicts, but there's also a program for families and spouses called the spouse and family support group mm. and sometimes they meet in the same buildings just a different classroom and they talk about what you as a spouse or family member are going through as well because Tamara needs healing needed healing mm -hmm. because of what I was doing did it directly affect her Everything does, yeah. But in your own mind, you're like, no, it's not hurting anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the church came out with family and spouse support group because they need healing if you're going to make it work. Well, thank you so much for being willing to share your story. I hope that this sparks more conversations so that both maybe addicts and addicts families would be more comfortable to be able to talk to you guys because you guys are obviously a wealth of information and uh an experience i think experience trumps everything because you just it creates that uh when you go to somebody and you say hey you just have to say like one word and it's just like i know yep you know and well, my garage is always open if people want to yeah. talk yeah that's where I do my talking is in the garage. So that's awesome. I'll, I'll pull out a chair and a bottle of water and we'll talk. Yeah. But, yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on Riverdale Stories. And just know that 
this mic is always open. So get a hold of me and let's chat.